0: We're back to normal.
1: Back to normal, are we? Yeah, sort of. (laughs) Is there such a thing as normal on a boat?
0: As normal as we'll ever be. Um, You're back in Indonesia the last few weeks. Well, two months, actually, you've been in the UK. And I've been holding the fort here.
1: You've done a very good job, I have to say, Elizabeth. (laughs) We've had quite a lot going on. And in fact, we are approaching with our vlogs what's going to be happening um, while we've been in the boatyard. So that will all be covered off soon. Yeah. But in the meantime, we thought we would discuss something, um, an event that happened or a series of events that happened. It actually came up in the last podcast comments, I think, didn't it?
0: Yeah, so the last podcast, 042, we were talking about everything that we did really before we started our YouTube channel. And obviously, we've been doing the sailing a long, long time, 17 years. So there's lots to catch up on. And um, one of the things, and we ended on going across the Indian Ocean.
1: Mm, that was exciting, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was. Um, And it struck me that talking about ocean crossings would be quite a good thing to do. We've got some experience of that, Atlantic, Med, Indian Ocean, Arabian Sea, South China Seas, all these places. We've done quite a lot of overnighters and long hauls. So we thought we would talk about that, but we got this comment, shall I read it, mm-hmm. from 24-hour travellers, and it's quite typical of what we get whenever with the subject of our Indian Ocean crossing comes up. 12 days, two-hour watches, what an experience. Did you make an in-depth episode just about this passage? Hello, I'm Liz.
1: And I'm Jamie.
0: Welcome to Follow the Boat, in which we discuss what it's really like to give it all up to live on a boat.
1: And go travelling around the world. We've been doing it since 2006 and we're still at it.
0: Each week we talk about our latest YouTube video. And about
1: boats, sailing, travel or anything else which floats into our heads.
0: And if you leave a comment we like, we'll give you an answer and a name check. Peace Peace and and fair fair winds. winds. Well, no, we didn't, because that was before we started doing these episodes. And also, we didn't really film that much.
1: No, although we do have some clips couple of clips shot from the front of the boat with you at the helm uh, which gives you actually a very good perspective of the, the sort of size of the the waves and the swell that we were contending with not to mention all the dark clouds that uh, were were sweeping in literally by the hour throughout that whole journey so we'll put a link to I think a couple of clips and yeah. and maybe also in our blog post we'll add a couple of clips as well but yeah. no we don't have a video episode of it But back then, of course, we were writing our blog quite extensively. So we were uh, writing lots of long form accounts of what was happening. And uh, of course, this was a, a series of accounts that happened over a few days. But before we even did the Indian Ocean crossing, we had that horrendous experience of trying to cross the equator while we were still thinking that we were heading to um, South Africa from the Maldives, and uh, and I, actually, I was reading through that blog post uh, only yesterday, and it just sent shivers down my spine.
0: I find it quite difficult to re- realize that we actually did it. You know, when I read it, I thought it all came flooding back, of course, mm. it's never left. but I, I had forgotten how bad it was. I mean we had a knockdown, I hit my head. A carnage below, we had water in the boat, um, we had just about everything that you can imagine. The only thing that was really good was our engine kept going because we needed the engine to get back up against wind and, and everything, to get back to Mali to safety. Uh, it's, it's a very long one, we'll definitely put a link to that. Um, but it meant that we got back to Malé in the middle of the Maldives, we limped in trying to decide what to do next. Um, In fact, if that crossing had been okay, we wouldn't even be here now because we would have gone to South Africa.
1: This is true. And I think also having the experience of that particular episode probably primed us for our adventure that happened next, going across the uh, Indian Ocean towards Malaysia. I think because we've been through... I think it was it lasted four or five days trying mm. to cross between atolls and it, it didn't work. So if you read the article you'll see just how scary that situation was. And scary for me because after twenty four hours, we ended up in exactly the same spot.
0: Yeah, we were hit sideways by a force eight that wasn't predicted. It just came out of nowhere and um the <sighs> To put it bluntly, it was safer. It felt better to sail at night when you couldn't see how bad the conditions were. than during the day, it was absolutely terrifying. Uh, And somehow we managed to get our way back. And during that terrible four or five days, we learned to really rely and trust each other, didn't Mm. we? Um, There were moments when each of us plummeted to the depths of um, stress, anxiety and depression. And then the other one would rally and pull that one up. Um, It really did. It did the world of good for our sailing, well, and our general
1: relationship, I think, didn't mm, it? Definitely, yes, definitely. about It was all about teamwork. Yeah. And you're right. And I think because we've been through that, the idea of crossing the Indian Ocean in the southwest monsoon, which, let's face it, is not the most pleasant of monsoons, very wet, very squally. Mm. Because we've been through all that, we already had the trust in each other and also the trust in the boat. So the idea of running with the southwest monsoon to Malaysia was kind of like yeah whatever we, we <laughs> can do stage. this you know we've been through shit so uh, what else can you throw at us?
0: We wouldn't recommend it to anyone <laughs> um, um, but it's just a fine example yet again of having to make decisions on the cuff and, had, and being prepared to change your plans at the drop of a hat and we had to look at all the options that were open to us. And frankly, going across the Indian Ocean was the best one. We couldn't leave the boat in the Maldives, couldn't get back to India. Sri Lanka was way out of the way and we couldn't go south and we couldn't go west. So we really had no option. We had to go and we had to get going. But of course, we didn't leave until late May in 2013, by which time it certainly had kicked in. It was the southwest, wasn't It, it really was.
1: Yeah, I mean, even if we'd wanted to go any any other direction, we simply couldn't. So it was just a case of running with the mm. wind. Um, but of course, it's a journey that many people had done. Yeah. Uh, two boats that we'd been sailing with around India, actually come down from India, uh, uh, had gone on ahead of us. We already knew people in Malaysia that had got there the previous year, the previous two years ago. So we knew that the passage itself was... It was a, a regular trade run, really.
0: Yeah, and to be honest, we were looking forward to it because the, the storm had finished. It had, taken, it had taken four or five days for it to blow out. So we had a lot of wind, but it wasn't stormy at that stage. I remember setting off from the Maldives. And it was a lovely sunny day. It was. We were quite prepared. We had all our food. Our provisions were all ready. i done prepared a few meals in the fridge everything was ship-shaped as much as it could be. We knew we'd cleaned up most of the oil and the water that got into the boat so we were kind of ready to go. It was um, a hatch that had broken so we managed to, I don't know what we did with that hatch, managed to pull it down and keep it closed so it wouldn't wouldn't open again. Um, We were raring to go to be honest. We had 1500 miles ahead of us. The plan was to get to Langkawi directly from the Maldives which is almost It it
1: is, it's a straight run, Mm. straight run. So in theory, relatively straightforward.
0: So we want to talk about that passage. Um, It has got some hairy bits in it, but it is quite typical of ocean passages. And if you're thinking of doing it, or if you have done an ocean passage, you'll know what we mean. Slight difference is that there were just two of us on the boat. So you've got to have quite tight watch systems. You have to get used to playing with your your head when it comes to sleep but uh, it's doable so should we talk about launching and going so we left Maldives in May and what was where the light was quite nice it was yes I
1: do remember the first couple of days were very pleasant so we had big grins on our faces and we had favorable winds so as far as we were concerned this was going to be an easy sail so we were pretty relaxed I think and um well Esper was you know, she was limping along. We had taken some damage in that previous squall, but uh, yeah, we were pretty happy with the situation. Um, so away we went.
0: We didn't have an autopilot. We need to make it quite clear from the outset that we didn't have a working B and G system. That had all that had really taken a, a hit, hadn't it? It was on its way out. It was old anyway, um, and it wasn't really working properly at all. In fact, hadn't been working for years <laughs> so we used our wind pilot
1: yeah <clears throat> the autopilot actually crapped out as we were going down the red sea and of course we weren't anywhere where we could get that looked at or fixed so we were relying on marge now we don't normally name our various <laughs> instruments on the boats but uh, marge was named by the previous owner. Yes. so it's a, it's a pacific wind pilot she was called Marge because of the great big paddle that hangs off the back. She's got Marge Simpson-like hair.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so anyway, they called her Marge. Um, we'd been sailing with Marge all the way down the Red Sea, and uh, across
0: the Arabian Sea. And
1: yeah, been fantastic. It had been fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So we were relying on her. And uh, once you've set them up, the trick with those things is to balance your sails first. So balance your sails first, then set your autopilot or your wind pilot. And you should be good to go. And, of course, with a straight run of 1,200 miles or so, mm. um, we, in theory, wouldn't have to touch her.
0: Yeah, they, they that's what they're set up for, for long days and weeks of sailing in the same direction. Once they're set, they're set. And so we knew we were ready to go, and she was great. Did you know that liking and subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts helps us to get noticed?
1: Go on, give us a helping hand. When we first started sailing, we made the mistake of staying on watch if we felt awake enough. So quite often, Liz tends to go to bed early in the evening and I can stay up. And the mistake we were making actually was that I was feeling good for six hours. So I may go on watch at six in the evening and feel like I could stay up till 12, which would give Liz six hours sleep. But uh, this is a mistake because what happens is, is that I am then exhausted so I go to sleep and well, two things happen. First of all, the kind of the onus is on you to then have to cover off another six hours. Mm. But more importantly, if something were to go wrong and I had to be roused from my sleep, I would go, I was going to be very, very tired. Mm. So we realised that it's really important to stick to a rigid watch system. And as I said, you tended to take the very early evening, right. so after sundown, sort of six o'clock in the evening until nine, by which time you would be feeling tired because just generally you do go to bed mm. earlier than I do. So I would then take the next watch. So it, it worked very well for us, didn't it?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, it would vary sometimes, but because there's two of you, can, you can do, we have got a little bit of play, you can change it a bit if you need to, but that's pretty much how we did it. So I usually did the Dawn watch, which is my favorite watch, Well, I
1: think that's everyone's favourite watch, to be honest, isn't it?
0: Watching the sun come up. yeah, uh, That that sort of primeval joy as you see the sun coming back and and the clouds suddenly you can see everything again. It's great. So, yeah, so we did that. But it was really important when you're not on watch to get some sleep, as you say, and we tried very hard... To throw ourselves onto the bed and to get some sleep, and usually you sometimes you didn't think you could, but you could, and during the day as well. So although it's interrupted, although you don't get great long bouts of sleeping properly, you take your sleep and you grab it when you can. And and that I reckon it takes. What do you you reckon it's day three?
1: Three days, I yeah. think. Three days, and you're properly into the rhythm of it. And yeah. that's the other reason for sticking to a schedule, is because your body gets into a rhythm, and if you stick to that rhythm, uh, that sort of that schedule then uh, it, it works
0: yes it does and and so that's what we had been doing and we set off working exactly like that it was great so we did uh, three days um of this um good weather good wind sailing obviously no motoring don't need to big waves kind of three four meter waves at least but rolling um behind us we were goose swinging some of the time mm-hmm. um i had a line out and I caught something on the, I think, day two or day three. I caught a brown booby.
1: Now, if anyone doesn't know what a brown booby is, it's like a big seagull, yes. a big brown seagull,
0: a huge seabird. Um, we saw him following us off the back of the boat and I didn't think it'd be stupid enough. But it did. It dived down. Of course, it's a really good rapala, um blade down, hanging, hanging about down the bottom of the water there. And it got caught up in it. Oh, dear, it was awful. What did we do? We pulled it on the yeah, boat, we hauled, didn't we? We had to
1: haul it in. We had, hauled
0: it in really fast.
1: Hauled him in. Of course, the problem was is that he's there with his beak open, yes. so he's taking in half the ocean yeah. as we're hauling him in. Managed to unhook him. Of course, he was exhausted.
0: So it was hooked to his beak, because he hadn't mm. swallowed it or
1: anything mm. like that. And, uh, and then we sat him on the solar panel. Now, we have our solar panels... Uh, they're sort of 90 degrees to the boat so they become like a flat surface and we were able to actually plonk him on that and even though the boat was rolling he was mm. able to to stay on it and every now and then he'd cough up uh seawater
0: yeah i was amazed he was alive actually but he was mm. doing it was so well it really was. well
1: yes the only problem was that with each roll of the boat he gradually slipped further and further back on the solar panel until eventually he slipped back into the water, but that was about after an hour of resting. Yeah. and I'm happy to say that when he landed in the water, he was okay.
0: Yeah um,
1: I, you know God knows how long he then stayed sitting in the water. Well, to recover. I like but... to
0: just remember seeing him sitting in the water, having a look round and trying to decide what <laughs> he was going to do next. It's quite unusual to catch um, a seabird because that they know, they don't they know the difference between a lure and a real fish. But we think he was probably a juvenile um, very young hadn't really didn't really know what he was doing um, It hasn't happened again I never wanted it to happen again actually mm. but, uh, so yeah so that was the uh, the only other thing I caught in the whole journey was a small tiny little it wasn't even a tuna some kind of jack um, as I had my line hanging out the back there were tuna the size of Jamie jumping over the line at one stage Do mm. you remember mm. But I didn't catch any of those just this little fish just decided to skewer itself on my lure and we caught that we gave it to
1: Millie. Well I think also we should say that when you're running with seas and they're big seas uh, it it becomes a real problem to not only to catch anything but more importantly to actually get it on board where you to catch something. Because normally what you do is you depower the boat, you slow the boat down. Well, when you've got the wind behind you and you're running goose wing, it's a little bit more problematic to slow the boat down. You certainly don't want to be turning 180 degrees. So, uh, to be honest, we're fully stocked up on (laughs) many, many cans of tuna from the processing plant in Malé in the Maldives. Some of the best tuna, canned tuna, that you can buy. Yes,
0: it's um, famous for its tuna.
1: Mm. Because that wasn't so much of a problem. No. No. But I think that after that, uh, that's when things started to go a little bit wrong, didn't they?
0: Yeah, so we, uh, on day four, I was steering, it was, it was night, it was night time and I was steering and I couldn't understand why the windpipe didn't seem to be, I wasn't steering, the windpipe wasn't working, we weren't going where we should be going, so I had to keep correcting and, and correcting and correcting and couldn't get anywhere and I ended up, he was asleep, didn't want to wake Jamie up. I ended up just hand steering, thinking, oh, we'll sort it out later. But then you got up.
1: Well, I came up saying, why (sighs) why do you keep altering course or why do you keep playing with the autopilot? Mm. And went back to the boat with a torch and shone it down to find that the wind pilot had lost its rudder. It had snapped off. The rudder had just completely come off. And so the way these wind pilots works is that you have this auxiliary rudder, it's an additional rudder that hangs off the back of the boat, and that is what is steering your boat because mm. you lock off your main rudder. Mm. So the auxiliary rudder is steering the boat in accordance with the paddle marge on the wind pilot.
0: It's a big thing. It's a big heavy thing, yeah. obviously, to steer a boat in our, our size. You, you can imagine. You can look them up. I'll put a link to wind pilot
1: yeah but obviously the forces who knows i mean i had a theory for years that we would actually run over a fishing cable um, because there were fishermen out there laying nets so who knows what happened but anyway the point was we had lost our rudder so now at this point it was midnight and and i remember thinking right we've lost our we lost our autopilot months ago
0: our electronic
1: um in fact it would have been more than months ago it yes. would have been a long time ago before we got to india yeah. um and now we've lost our wind pilot so what do we do now because the idea of doing another 1200 odd miles mm. steering by hand was well no, didn't want to do that mm. so the only other option really we had was to maybe turn 90 degrees and head north with the idea of maybe trying to get to Sri Lanka
0: yeah that was a possibility, but we did know that everyone that we had met had gone round the Cape of Sri Lanka and had a terrible time.
1: Well I <clears throat> I think more importantly what I was thinking was can we get things fixed? Mm. What what advantage is there to going to Sri Lanka? Mm. It's not famous for its boat well, not I say boat building, I mean for yacht maintenance let's say mm. it's not particularly famous <coughs> for that. And I think that uh, it it would have we would have been taking many steps backwards to have gone up there with all our broken gear and expected to have fixed it. Yeah.
0: Um. Yeah. A lot, I mean, we could have flown stuff in and so forth, but we'd have just had to. It would have been awful, really, and not the way we wanted to go and uphill as well against a lot of weather. So that was pretty quickly came off the list, didn't it? Yeah, I think Going back to India was the other one.
1: Yeah, but we... Also no good. It, it just would have been so difficult. Of course, you know, this is a southwest monsoon, so going into India... Um, well, anyway, that I don't think that I even entertained that no. idea. And we because, couldn't
0: get back to Maldives either, could we?
1: No, because we're running with yep. these following seas, so you can't turn around and head to the Maldives. So really the only other option was to just keep going yeah and I think because we'd had a good first two days we figured well you know we could keep doing this Mm. yeah we gave no consideration to the fact that we would now have to be hand steering (laughs) without any kind of autopilot uh, for the remainder of the journey
0: I mean just to be to be fair Esper is a very good boat she does balance very well so quite a lot of the time once you get she, she will just go on her own without you having to steer. But of course, we were in just about to get the worst of the monsoon coming through with continuous storms and thunder and lightning for the rest of the journey, which we didn't realise that was going to happen. Sorry for interrupting, but while I've got you here, if you like what we do and you want to support us and become a Patreon, or join us on FTB Mates, or even drop a quid in the rum fund, go to followtheboat.com forward slash pub.
1: Of course, come to the pub. For the next couple of days then, it was plain sailing, do we use that expression <laughs> here? Uh, of course, we were having to hand steer, but the weather was fairly consistent and uh, we were in our rhythm in our watch system so it was pretty straightforward I suppose just a little bit of work but I think because we had this nice consistent wind uh, not too many squalls at this point uh, and a steady motion to the boat we were feeling fairly comfortable.
0: Well that only lasted a day or so before Mm. the squalls really started to hit and then you had to really steer because out until then a little bit of Vespa had been, do- she'd been doing some of the work, but once you got those squalls in and that, and that big weather, it was that breaking, and we reduced our uh, watches to two hours, because you couldn't do more than two hours, could you?
1: Yeah, we should explain that, you know, if you imagine when you're hand steering, you've got your hands on the steering wheel, and for those just listening, I'm raising my shoulders up, so you imagine a big steering wheel, but now your shoulders are raised up, your elbows are bent out in order to hold on to the wheel. Now, if you imagine if you're steering like that solidly for two hours, holding on quite tightly as well, let's not forget, because you're having to counter the motion of the waves, which are you know slowly pushing Esper sideways. So you are constantly, it's not like you're just holding the wheel, you mm. are actually steering. Yeah. Doing that for two hours, but then getting a two-hour break while the other person does it, two hours is not enough to recover from that, Mm. to then have to go on and do another two hours.
0: Yeah. And we did that for the next week. Mm. So 24 hours, two hours on, two hours off, both of us absolutely exhausting. It was really hard and physically very hard. I'm not sure now that i would be able to do it we were strong
1: then we were much fitter yeah much uh younger yes um I, I think i think we would do it yeah because one of the important things that and this this is a recurring theme in the various events that happened after this is when adrenaline kicks mm. in and how you shouldn't underestimate how much strength reserves energy your body has when it really needs it it somehow finds it from somewhere yeah. and it your body manages and it copes.
0: It's a mental attitude, isn't it? So although your body is finding it hard, um, you're in a lot of pain quite a lot of the time. You're not getting enough sleep. When you've got that positive attitude in that I've got to do this, there is no one else out here. There's only me and you. There's only us. If we don't do this, what's going to happen? Nothing. We've got to do it. So that strength of character takes over everything else. Everything else doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about the pain. Um, so you you do just get through it. We were doing force six, force eights a lot of the time um, with lightning. We were storm dodging, weren't we? We were storm...
1: <laughs> well, we weren't storm dodging. No. We had no choice. The storms... I'd never seen anything like this before. Maybe I just had never noticed it on land, but it was just squall after squall after squall and of course you can see when squalls are coming the clouds get darker the sea state changes the the waves build and the squalls will blow over they'll hit 30 to 40 knots uh and then they'll die and well normally on land you're used to single squalls and then the birds come out and the sun come out and it's rainbows and unicorns again but with the southwest monsoon it was relentless I have never seen so many squall after squall after squall and you think, oh, it, when's it going to stop and it doesn't, it becomes nighttime. it <laughs> continues, I just, It just, it's indescribable. At it's...
0: night you're just looking for any patch of sky that's got a star in it, yes. just hoping that you're going to go towards that. Otherwise, you just know you can't always see them coming. I do remember once being on the helm and you coming up to relief and you went, oh my God, we see what's behind you. And I said, no, I've just given up looking. I just don't <laughs> care if it's coming, it's coming. And on that note, it is weird how you get used to things. You know, nowadays, um, if we went out, we wouldn't go out in a storm like that to begin with where well, nobody would, you wouldn't. But but nowadays, they just happen occasionally because it's not many overnight sales that we do anymore. We tend to coastal hop as much as possible. But when you've been doing it for a few days, literally, storm after storm after school, you start the fear goes. Mm. Don't even think about the lightning. You just plod along. You're right. like a piece of machinery, aren't you? If you find this topic interesting and would like to continue the conversation, come and join the Follow the Boat Discord community. Look for the link in the description. It's free. Just want to talk a little bit here about how it feels to be doing this, you know, so that if you haven't done it, we get a little bit closer to understanding how it feels. What would you say?
1: I think your body just falls into auto mode. Yes. Sadly, the only automatic thing that was working on the boat were our bodies. <laughs> that Once you've got into that rhythm and the motion and the weather and the waves and everything... Your body just takes over, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and you're, you're, it's not quite survival mode. It's a, maybe a bit extreme. But it's
0: close to it. It's it's it, it's on the way. It gives you an understanding of what it must be like.
1: And I think also you have to be quite philosophical because you know that you're going to be stuck in this situation for many days. Mm. There is an end. Yeah. At, at the end, you know there is an end. So you'll get somewhere eventually. Uh, so you can't afford to get depressed about how long you're going to be stuck in this situation so you really are living in the moment I suppose
0: I think that's the survival instinct you Mm. know those they do say that if you can imagine it finishing it getting there being rescued finding whatever it is you're looking for if you've got that that's one of the reasons that people do survive Mm. and I I felt that very strongly but there were moments when it dipped um, for both of us and we sort of helped each other out a bit it was the lack of sleep I was surprised how I didn't seem to mind that. So you get off your watch, you've got two hours to, to do what you can and then go back and, and, and relieve the other one. And pretty much both of us just went straight to sleep, didn't we?
1: Yeah, we should say asleep in the cockpit. Yes. We didn't go down below yeah. because two hours isn't long enough to get all your stuff off get comfortable in the bed but more importantly we wanted to be there for each other in case anything you know an emergency were to happen yeah so we got actually quite used to just dozing in the cockpit but the lack of sleep brings on the subject of hallucinations Oh my word! which i'm sure you know many of you have had actually and what I found was you'd start off with auditory hallucinations, and we both got this, and we both get it frequently. Actually, when you're tired, especially when you're actually doing short overnighter hops mm. rather than long distances, when your body hasn't quite got used to the rhythm, um, you start hearing things. Yeah. And the, the one thing I used to hear more than anything else were school children or children playing in a playground. The yeah. the, the, the sort of background noise of a crowd of children very very strange i
0: heard russian choirs Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: i heard um world war ii fighter pilots (laughs) not during the day we didn't really i didn't really get them during the day it was at night and every time the night would come i'd wonder what was going to happen (laughs) saw a dog i i I remember going putting my hand forward to pat the dog and then realizing there's no dog there
1: yeah so we should talk uh, th- this is hallucinations going beyond the auditory hallucinations because auditory hallucinations start first it's then the visual hallucinations yeah. that kick in and that is when you're really tired and you're awake enough to n- to know that they're hallucinations most of the time but then you start slipping into that dreamlike state in between wake and sleep.
0: It's that drifting off thing you get when, you, when you're when you about to go to sleep and I think I did read I think I've got this right that it's called hypnagogia. Some, a word like that which means you're not asleep you're not awake you're in that in that twilight world.
1: Mm. So yes you saw, we, we both saw the dog yeah, didn't we? Yeah that
0: dog yeah.
1: We both saw a dog <laughs> in the cockpit.
0: I was chatting to someone at the mast they were standing, a little, little person at the mast telling me jokes. <laughs>
1: and the compass as well the oh, compass yeah. lit up you'd stare at this and this became like a a snow shaker a, a whole world it was a
0: whole world
1: existing inside the the yeah. the compass right
0: people wandering streets lights buildings
1: patterns growing out the corner of your eyes the worst hallucination i got though was seeing another boat come alongside oh. us now i can't remember if that was this journey or the on the one where we had the knockdown but uh that actually did fill me with dread because it had appeared out of nowhere and it was unlit and it was close enough you could almost touch it mm. and of course I blinked and looked up again and had and gone which mm. was almost even more scary mm. the fact that I had imagined this I'd never had hallucinations like this without the assistance of psychotropics.
0: They they really do feel real. I was laughing at this bloke telling me, Joe, it's a little, little, dwarfy fella, little, little fella. And the dog trying to pat the dog. Um, And I think that um, I can understand why sailors have so many, Stories and that's why they say here be dragons and all that sort of thing, monsters and mermaids. Because they these do seem incredibly real. Mm. These hallucinations that you get. So that's it's mainly to do with lack of sleep, but there is something about being in the sea as well—the sounds, the noises,
1: the the general feeling, the wind, everything. Something else I noticed, and I had noticed it previously, but ever so much on this journey was how physically the environment you're sailing in doesn't change Mm. the size of the waves are the same the dark size the skies the squalls and what have you and yet every day the sea took on a different personality Mm. and one day it felt like I was we were genuinely sailing uphill Mm. another time when we had a whiteout I could imagine, I was taken back to places. I could imagine, oh, yes, I'm on this country road and I know there's a stream just <laughs> around the corner. And this is where you're mixing up hallucinations with, uh, this is during the day, and every day having a different, taking on a different character. Yes. I, I can't really explain it, but it, it's, um, when I think of each day, when I go back through the log and I remember, yes, that that 100-mile leg there. Yes, the sea state was like da-da-da. And, mm. I, and I remember taking, being taken back to a childhood location.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that people say, don't you get bored doing ocean crossings? Well, on this particular ocean crossing, no. It went pretty fast because there was so much to do, so many things happening and such, such short watches. You just have to survive and get through it and get to the other end. I can imagine if you've got, say, six people on board, doing watches, you pretty much get a proper night's sleep yeah. every day. Yeah. Bloody hell. And you're only doing watch every now and again. Yeah. So most of the rest of the time, what are you doing? These lucky people that have all these people on their boats. Sleeping. Sleeping,
1: reading, listening to music, cooking. cooking. Mm, because we should say yes. we weren't able to do any cooking. Right.
0: So a quick word on what we ate. We pretty much survived just on those cans of tuna. Uh, we were able to boil a kettle for a coffee or tea and the rest of the time, in that two hours, you ate and you ate some tuna. That was basically all we had. I think we had some apples. So in in those two weeks, we lost a lot of weight. People but, were saying when they saw us, they couldn't believe it. But
1: hold on, we should explain the reason why we're not eating is not because we didn't have provisions. Oh, we, we had, had plenty of provisions. It's just we were unable. We didn't have the strength, I think, more than anything, the resolve to, yeah. to volunteer to go down and cook something big.
0: Well, we didn't have the time, when you consider two hours on, two hours off. In those two hours off, you had to sleep. Mm. That was the most important. It was incumbent in upon you to get some sleep so you would be able to relieve the next person. And the quickest thing was just to eat straight out of tins, you know, wolf it down, get some sleep, get mm. some protein in you. So that's how we survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't eat very much. A couple of people have said over the years, why don't you heave too? And it was something we discussed, and one of the other boats did, on mm. Chinook they did. Did they? yeah
1: Hmm.
0: (laughs) why didn't we i remember discussing it and deciding not to
1: i i think i think with hindsight maybe we should have done just Mm. to give ourselves some rest but Mm. it uh, i don't know the idea of heaving to in that those kind of seas didn't Mm. particularly fill me with any comfort to Mm. be honest um i just didn't relish that idea because
0: we'd be worried all the time about what was going on if we were asleep
1: yeah and i think also there was uh, a feeling of just want to get this out of the way get it Get it done. Let's just get there as quickly as possible.
0: That was definitely my feeling. I thought, don't need to yet. As long as I can keep doing this, as long as I can mm. keep standing and doing this, I don't want to do that. I just want to get there. Mm. So, yeah, although it could have been an option and we know that people do do it. And if we'd had to, we would have done it. And in fact, if we get on to day eight, um, that was a day when I think we were just about ready to do it. Genoa went, the furling mechanism.
1: Yes, unbeknown to me at the time, and I have later learned all about halyard wrap. And if you don't know what halyard wrap is, you should understand it. Because this is where your halyard for your head sail, when you try and unfurl the headsail, or worse still, try and furl it away, the halyard turns more quickly than the drum. And so the top of the halyard ends up wrapping around your foil. And this is this is what had happened, except back then I had no idea that this was what the problem was. No. No. So we, first of all, I think we got, didn't we get stuck with it out? Yeah. Uh, and then eventually we were able to furl it away and couldn't furl it back out. But th- basically we ended up just having to drop the thing.
0: I think we had to drop it while it was out. While it was out. We right. couldn't furl it away. And that, right. was, that was what was scary because we, we would only furl it out if we felt the conditions warranted it. But most of the time we were sailing on the main and, and the mizzen. Um, but yeah, so that it got stuck. And that was scary because we had a school coming. I remember it was raining. So the two of us went up the front. I can't remember. No. Both went up the front. No, no. You You went up the front. What? (laughs) I wrapped it to the boat. Uh,
1: Yes. So I got it down Mm. and came back to the helm. And then I said to you, with the oncoming next school, school Mm. number 258, that you need to go to the front and lash down the sail Mm. to the guardrail using sail ties. Because now, you know, imagine the sail is now just lying along the side of the boat. The last thing you want to happen is for that to go overboard.
0: Yeah, I think you'd you'd partially lashed it. You wouldn't have left it just just hanging there. But for, for one reason or another, I ended up being at the front of the boat lashing. And you had to be on the helm because of the weather that was coming in. That's right. And I do remember my head over the side, obviously clipped on you know with safety and everything and I remember my head being over the side and just being dunked in the ocean it was the waves were so bad and um wrapping it with everything I could find every bit of spare rope um that I could find because we didn't want to lose the sail nothing wrong with the sail we had to make sure it wasn't going to go over the edge and cause havoc and as I was doing it that's when I heard you say I think there's something out there
1: so with Liz at the front of the boat, I decided to just turn the boat around and head west. So now I'm pointing the boat into the oncoming seas and into the oncoming squall.
0: I think I swore at you because I was at the front of the boat. You think?
1: I know you swore at me, oh, I remember. Yeah. And I said to you, I shouted across and said, uh, I think there's some turtles that need rescuing because I had seen these two turtles in the water that looked like they were in distress because they were on the surface and they were splashing around.
0: Yeah, you thought it was a whole load of... Well, in fact, when I looked up, I thought, oh, God, what's going on? You know, what worry about the boat, not the turtles. But I did see a whole load of fishing line in the nets, all great lump of it. And I said, no, it's all right, it's just nets. And you said, no, I can see something. And as you said that, I saw the fins coming up. So we were just about to be hit the rain had started we were just about to be hit with another great big squall coming at us and there were these turtles and we decided to rescue them.
1: Mm. So we had to take the sails down go alongside we probably put the boat uh, the engine on and brought the boat alongside. Yeah we did these a man turtles.
0: overboard maneuver didn't we? It was great. So we went we went they were coming at us and we were going upwind towards them so we let them drift onto the boat which is what you're supposed to do in a man overboard
1: well there's there's two schools of thought on on that actually i think it's a bit divided so um, what w- w- what i tend to do is to put the boat between the weather and the person in the water so they stay They're kind of protected from the weather. But some people argue that that's dangerous, especially if you've got an engine running because uh, you're likely to go, you know, to plough over the top of them. Right. So, in fact, you should keep them on the uh, windward side. If anyone has an opinion on this, (laughs) then let us know in the comments. But we decided to keep the turtles on the leeward side so they were effectively protected by by the the wind and, and the waves. And somehow you managed to pull them out of the water yeah because
0: first of all we tried the boat hook and that didn't work mm. and then you tried to clip the halyard onto the nets because they were completely trapped in the but we, they kept swinging out you know what with the movement of the boat and the waves there was just no way we could get that halyard down there and while you were trying to get the halyard back i'd let go of the te- you know the boat at this day we were just drifting i just put my hands over the edge and pulled. And did, manage to pull two turtles two, out
1: of the water. These are two full-grown turtles. Half-grown, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. they were big. Yeah. They were big. And uh, anyway, so Liz managed to get them on, on board. Adrenaline. And I remember the first thing you said was, get the camera. Do you
0: like our coffee mugs? You can get your own from our shop. Find them at followtheboat.com forward slash shop. So with the turtles on board, we got our sailing knives out and we freed them, didn't we?
1: Yes, always carry a sailing knife on you. Very useful in these situations. Yeah. Able to cut them free and uh, and release those turtles. And I think that whole instant really lifted our spirits, didn't it? Really
0: it really did, even though we didn't get any pictures, because you were quite right that we didn't need the camera. That it was just a matter of... Well, no,
1: I do regret that. I <laughs> yeah, should have got the camera. But, you know, you've got two creatures in yeah. distress because... One of them had actually swallowed uh, fish, and I had got caught it in its mouth. So we had to cut all that away. Yeah. So we really didn't have time to to get the camera out and take some, you know, some, yeah, sort of photos for glory.
0: Waves but, were really high, and that storm was coming, in, and the big spots of rain were coming down. It was like, oh god, look, let's get this done quickly.
1: Mm. But it lifted our spirits, yes. and I, we needed that, actually. It was the right thing to do, yeah. but it uh, right thing to do in terms of saving the turtles, of course, yeah. but also the right thing to do for us because we were just sort of kind of, like, elevated. Oh, it. it
0: rejuvenated mm. us. We suddenly got all this energy back, you know, having start, really starting to flag, and we're tired and everything. But as I said earlier, it's amazing what the mind can do to the body because we you know, all the aches and pains went, all the grumpiness, well... Time to be grumpy, I mean, but sort of generally feeling pretty grotty. And suddenly, bang, we were alive again, weren't mm, we? Mm. Full determination.
1: Yes, but that didn't last long, did it? Because <laughs> the next thing that broke was the uh the outhaul car mm. on the mainsail had come off of its track because of course by this point we were relying pretty much on the mainsail. Yeah. With it pulled well it sort of prevented out. Mm. Um, so I had to lash down the outhaul over the boom in order to maintain that shape so it was an easy fix but it was just another thing that went wrong yeah
0: and things do go wrong on boats uh, when you're out at sea so you've got to have your wits about you've you got to come up with uh, ways to handle it and um, sort it out was there a problem with with the um, staysail? I can't remember It wasn't a very good sail. No. It was the one that we knew we needed to replace. Yes,
1: it was very baggy. It had lost its shape. So it wasn't a very good sail to use. But I think we did use it. We did. I remember
0: using the main, most, main and mizzen most. Main and mizzen. Yeah.
1: But at this point, of course, now we're approaching uh, Sumatra. And uh, this is where the currents started to kick in. And this is where I remember um, sailing uphill, the feeling of sailing uphill. I can picture it clearly the weather had cleared a little but i remember yeah. just looking at the horizon and thinking it's sitting at an angle <laughs> and so i felt like i was having to look up to sail up this bit but uh, of course as we approached sumatra which we did at night this is where we got our first glimpse of land. Now, that was
0: another uplift. It was. Yes. Now, it's
1: not land that we were planning to, no. to fall on and we saw it from a distance, but the fact that we could see land, big mountains mm. in the distance of northern Sumatra. But at night time, of course, this was accompanied by a corridor of fire, which yes. is the only way I can describe it because of the amount of lightning storms that were starting to happen all over land.
0: There was nowhere seemed to be safe it looked like whatever we did we were going to be hitting lightning and i remember saying to you what what are we going to do what what do we do should we get do do we want to try and get round it somehow and you just said i don't think there's anything we can do just got to go straight through and just trust to luck Mm. god
1: yeah really frightening which we did but uh you know now so effectively we've now I suppose we've left the Indian Ocean and we're now coming into the. What's the area called above the Malacca Strait? Well, it's the
0: it's the Andaman Sea, and then yeah. it's the Malacca Strait. Mm. So we we'd um, we had land in front of us. When you get close enough, you can smell it. I kid you not? You really can smell the land. We weren't that close yet, but we were we were, we were heading there. But, yeah, so the Malacca Strait and the Andaman Sea in front of us. And up until then, we hadn't really seen any shipping, had we?
1: The only ship that we saw, I actually got in touch with because I had spotted him on AIS some miles off over the horizon to our port side, and I'd actually made a note of his ship. And then next thing I know, his AIS disappears, and he turns his lights off. Hmm. And I radioed through to him, calling him by his ship's name because I'd made a note of it, and this very surprised skipper answered and said, how do you know I'm here? How do you know my boat name? And I said, well, you were just on AIS, but you've turned your target off now and you've turned your lights off. What, what are you doing? Mm. And he admitted that he was scared of piracy. Now, he must have been coming from Bangladesh, maybe somewhere up in that, right. that area. Yes. Coming south.
0: Right. Um,
1: and I guess he was heading... Well, who knows where he was heading, but he said that he had turned everything off because he was worried about piracy. This is a massive container ship. So if you've got commercial uh, skippers turning off all their gear at night, then this is another reason why you need to be on your toes at night time doing night watches. Yes,
0: yes. So that's Bay of Bengal, which is very unlike, that's not really a piracy area. It's not. He was obviously going to go up the Red Sea, he was getting ready maybe. I guess so. Or he was just dodgy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but well, that, that, that that was the only literally yes. the only boat that we had come across and the whole journey because let's face it who would be stupid enough <laughs> to go out in this kind of weather <laughs> no one
0: it's not a shipping lane going across the uh, um the Indian Ocean from the Maldives it's just not a shipping lane nobody
1: goes that way mm. so well I think lots of people go that way like who well, it's it, yachts. <clears throat> yes uh, it's a commercial I mean you'll see commercial vessels uh, in theory would travel along that way why would they not but it's just strange that we didn't see anyone I yeah. guess I don't know I
0: don't think it's a huge shipping area most of them are heading up towards the Suez, going up that way or going down to South Africa I think our bit was sort of in, in the middle mm. anyway we didn't we... see much anything yes. until we got to Sumatra
1: well, we did see a, I remember, this is where we started to see solo fishermen out 200 miles offshore in their tiny little vessels mm. and thinking, where on earth have you come from? Mm. And where on earth are you going? What What are you doing this far out? Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, sure enough, the local fishermen, they do venture that far out. Uh, but yeah, so we had to really contend with lots of lightning. This is when we really started seeing lightning storms sort of we'd had squalls with the odd flash of lightning but this was proper proper Mm. squall static squalls and i guess sumatras as they're called which are these vicious lightning squalls that travel from sumatra east towards malaysia
0: yeah across the malacca strait so we weren't there we were west of that but we could see it all in front of us um and on the andaman sea and it's in, incredible it's just light the whole time mm. that, that's how they do it over here if you want to see a lightning storm bring your boat over here you'll see plenty <laughs> so we were we were on the last leg but as you said we were sailing uphill and i think in your diary because i had a, had a read through we did 68 nautical miles in one day
1: yes that's uh, how
0: bad the current was yes,
1: to put that in context that's not very far at all no. uh, we were
0: doing 150 up until then
1: yeah So it just goes to show you the the currents that were starting to kick in. Um, But I guess at this point, land is in sight, if not physically. Um, We knew this was the last leg, essentially. So we got over the top of Sumatra and we're now heading directly towards Lankari, which is what, 200 miles away or so? Yes,
0: because the thing is that emotionally, mentally, you're you're starting to decelerate because you've done it. You've got across the Indian Ocean. (coughs) There's land. There's Sumatra. And just across the way there, there's Lankari where we're heading to. We're still 200 miles away. Mm. Still got a hand steer there. Mm. And by this stage, we didn't get those lovely consistent winds. The winds started doing some strange things. And so we had the engine on and we were motor sailing. And that involves purely doing it by hand so hands doing solidly for the next still three days God, mm. oh, and that was hard because you know you think you've finished with the still all that ahead of you
1: and when we eventually uh, came to lankawi it was in a complete whiteout wasn't it there was yeah, so, much, see anything. so much rain yeah could not see anything and of course you know you're coming into a new cruising territory but not just that you're coming into a new continent Mm. so you've you've no idea what to expect
0: it was so foreign and different Mm. and green and sort of massive great trees and mountains and volcanoes it was incredible
1: I think there there was a sense of excitement at that yeah. point as well is that yeah. finally we are now entering into a new cruising territory that from our point of view is uncharted unexplored yes. you know we had no idea what this place was going to be like we just knew that this whole area including thailand phuket was a popular spot for cruisers so there must be some reason why all these boats come here uh, but we were just a little bit confused by the <laughs> fact that it was raining so hard we couldn't oh. we couldn't see you know 50 meters beyond the bow wow. uh, and thinking well why on earth would anyone want to cruise around <laughs> here it's just wet all the time
0: it was the wet season and sure enough we got to know that but we'd made it so that was getting across the indian ocean i hope that insight what we've discussed has given you an idea of what it would be like and although it was quite extreme in that we had to hand steer if you put that bit aside, everything else is pretty much par for the course. That's what happens when you when you go across an ocean, particularly if it's just two of you.
1: Mm. I th- Just imagine the difference it would have made, though, if we'd had some kind of uh, autopilot. Yeah. It would have been an entirely different journey.
0: Yeah. Um, would have eaten some nice meals.
1: Yeah, <laughs> maybe even caught some fish. Mm. Who knows? But we, we should emphasise that when we got to Lankari, we were physically emotionally battered properly battered it was the hardest thing I think I can speak for both of us and say it's the hardest thing we've ever undertaken ever Um, and for it to be consistently difficult like that for 13 days or however many days solid with no break that's the that's That's the the thing it's the fact that there is no break from it at all And by the time we got to Lankara, I remember going to the shower block and taking off my shirt and I was (laughs) properly ripped. I had a six pack again. Yeah, me too. I was looking, I was (laughs) looking good, but I was feeling properly battered.
0: And having experienced that, it's really put us in good stead because around this part of the world, you do get a lot of storms and you do get a lot of weather. And when you venture out across, you know, if you're going to the Andaman Sea, certainly when you go around to the South China Sea, you get that weather again. You get really bad weather and wipeouts and, and all kinds of stuff. So, having done it for so long, nothing faces us anymore. Mm. And the boat carries us through all of these things, water spouts as well, you get here, which we didn't see out in the ocean. But
1: I, I think more importantly, the the biggest lesson, of course, is teamwork. And yes. the fact that Liz and I, we worked, we worked well as a team before all this. Mm-hmm. And we worked well as a team throughout, which means that now when we are in similar situations, uh, we know that we can rely on each other. And that's probably the biggest lesson out of all of it
0: yeah we just get we just have muscle memory now we just just get into it don't have to say anything just get on with it Mm. so yeah going across an ocean that was our trip that was the Indian Ocean for us if you've got any stories about ocean crossing put them in the comments we would love to hear your stories Mm. always interesting
1: Mm. thanks for listening cheers bye